Section 6 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Maxwell. Criminal Investigation, A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Chapter 16. Continued. Section 8. Poisoning. Here, more than elsewhere, we appear to be dragging the investigating officer beyond his limits and launching him on a perilous quest. But nevertheless, many cases arise where it is of the greatest importance for him to have at least some general knowledge of the different poisons and the effects produced by them, especially when he is obliged, without medical assistance, to make a domiciliary search in a poisoning case. The investigating officer may suddenly suspect poison and be compelled to act without waiting for expert aid. For the examination of witnesses, moreover, he will find it useful to have some knowledge, however slight, of poisonous bodies. He cannot have an expert to sit with him and advise him. Either in such a predicament the investigating officer would have to consult with the expert before every question and after every answer or the expert would himself put the questions and so take the control of the inquiry out of the hands of the officer. Apart from the impracticability of such a proceeding, the presence of medical experts at the examination of witnesses, often many in number, would be both embarrassing and costly. The necessity of some elementary knowledge of this kind is all the more imperative in India, where poisoning, homicidal, suicidal, and accidental, is so rife. In the five years, 1896 to 1900, in Calcutta, the number of causes per 1,000 suicidal cases were poison, 554, males and females about equal, hanging, women in excess, 263, drowning, men in excess, 91, cuts, stabs, etc., 38, all other causes, 54. In India, poisons have been studied and the art of poisoning practiced from the earliest times. Indeed, it has often been carried to a pitch of refinement that would put medical Europe to shame. One instance will suffice. In a semi-historical legend of mid-India, it is related that the grandfather of Asoka, Chandra Gupta, a contemporary of Alexander the Great, sent to the latter monarch in the guise of a present a fascinating girl who was a poison maiden, fed on poison until she was so saturated with venom that her embrace would prove fatal to an ordinary mortal. The mere conception of the idea of such a Borgia-like siren would imply considerable familiarity with poisoning. There are many cases of death by poisoning in India which are not in their intent either homicidal or suicidal, and yet can hardly be called accidental, for there is an enormous employment of poisonous substances as aphrodisiacs, abortificients, debilitories, sedatives, intoxicants, and exhilarants, to give Dutch courage. The use of poisons is greatly facilitated by the ease with which innumerable deleterious substances can be bought in every bazaar or gathered in every jungle. Many are used for various household and manufacturing purposes and are kept without the slightest pretense of care. Again, innumerable poisonous substances are used in their medicines by native physicians, hakims, and vadians, as well as by the various quacks. 
poisonous substances are also used largely for cattle poisoning. Such considerations must greatly complicate the task of the investigating officer. On the other hand, it is simplified by the fact that the poisons in ordinary use are very limited in number. Statistics for homicidal and suicidal cases combined show that in Madras, Bombay, and the Punjab, over 50% of the cases are arsenical. In the Punjab, about 30%, in Bombay, about 16%, and in Madras, about 7% are due to opium. In Bengal, the positions are reversed, about 58% being cases of opium poisoning and only 30% arsenical. This is due to the prevalence of suicide in Bengal, for which opium is everywhere the favorite medium. All other substances follow far behind. In the Punjab and Bombay, Datura comes third. In Calcutta, aconite. In Madras, mercury, with aconite fourth. The only other substances we need mention here are pounded glass and strychnia. A great variety of substances, both mineral and vegetable, are used sporadically, generally for specific purposes, death being due to an overdose or some other incidental cause. Two cautions may be added. First, it is only too well known that the symptoms of arsenical poisoning closely resemble those of cholera. To detect the difference may be beyond the power of the investigating officer unaided by medical experts, but he can at least accurately record the symptoms, for without such accurate record the medical expert can come to no trustworthy conclusion. In a solitary case, in a district free of the disease, the presumption will naturally tend to poisoning. But there is only too much reason to believe that a cholera epidemic is at times taken advantage of for the getting rid of troublesome or useless relatives and friends. Secondly, the action of some of the vegetable poisons closely resembles that of the various tomains, tomains either produced in the course of cadaveric decomposition or introduced into the body through some fertile medium. See for references, page 218. It is true the common sources of tomane poisoning in Europe and America tinned provisions, sausages, etc., could rarely affect anyone in India outside the small body of Europeans, but there are other causes just as potent. Fish, often by preference rotten, is one. Again, when we consider the immense consumption of milk, the carelessness in its use, often drawn from diseased or unhealthy cows, kept in open and often dirty vessels in filthy outhouses, drunk at times by preference when sour, we may well conclude that milk is responsible for a heavy mortality. Again, grains frequently become diseased and spread disease. We may cite the historic instance quoted by Shevers how an attack of so-called cholera in Lord Hastings' camp in 1817 was traced to unwholesome rice, and, so late as 1900, an outbreak of severe diarrhea in a Bengal jail was traced to the maize in the food. In India, the Penal Code gives comprehensive definitions which prevent any technical discussions as to the meaning of poison. Thus, sections 324 and 326 recite, Any poison or any corrosive substance or any substance which it is deleterious to the human body to inhale, to swallow, or to take into the blood. And see also section 328. It must not be imagined that in poison cases occurring in practice, a start can always be made from the supposition that A has killed B with the poison X, which is luckily found in A's house. 
Such a case would be easily decided. It will be sufficient to establish the identity of the poison found in the stomach of the poisoned person with that which A possessed, and to be sure that the symptoms of B's illness correspond to those ordinarily produced by the poison X. Under such conditions, all doubts are removed. But it is not always so easy as that. Suppose, for example, that all that is known is that B has died under suspicious circumstances, that a post-mortem examination excludes the idea of a natural death and shows symptoms of poisoning, although the doctors cannot on the spur of the moment state the exact nature of the poison, and further that A is suspected as the only person who could have poisoned B. A search in the house of A will probably have no result, for the non-possession of a poison in such a case shows that it has been used and consequently cannot be found again. Hence, the investigating officer endeavors to prove by the depositions of witnesses that A was formerly in the possession of such a poison. We know that it is, even when possible, troublesome and difficult to establish poisoning by chemical analysis or microscopic examination. The task of the expert is therefore much shortened when the statements of the witnesses give some indication of the inquiry that ought to be made. As for example, if it is possible to affirm that the suspected individual had been known to possess a certain definite poison. But when the investigating officer wishes to question the witnesses about minerals and plants, of which they may not even know the name, then if he wishes to lead them in the right lines, he ought at least himself to know their external appearance. Of course, he can get the necessary information from the expert, but to be useful, such information should be full and complete, and even then there will always be something wanting, for an expert can never seize all the details which come out in the course of an inquiry. It is therefore far easier for an investigating officer once for all to know something about toxicology, something about natural history, and especially about the more important poisonous substances. He should examine the poisonous plants of his country, either fresh or dried. He should observe the mineral poisons under their different forms, and he must do this not once but often, at regular intervals, for such details very easily slip out of the memory, and a mistake of this kind may lead to very serious consequences. It should be added that it is absolutely essential for him to know the different denominations of the different poisons in different countries. Poisonous plants in particular bear everywhere different names, and many of them have often even in the same district several denominations. Besides, it is important to have information on the effects, which, rightly or wrongly, are attributed to poisonous bodies in the district in question. Popular beliefs are often very characteristic, and may, combined with other information, largely contribute to clear up poisoning mysteries. Thus, in certain districts of Thuringia, it is believed that the repeated drinking of a decoction of hemlock produces no symptoms of poisoning, but that the individual to whom it has been administered is destined to certain death with all the symptoms of consumption, so that in any specific case, if the suspected guilty person has told the witnesses that the deceased certainly died of consumption, while there are no other grounds for suspecting that disease, that alone would be a reason for suspecting him of the crime of poisoning. A similar case occurred in Bohemia. A man had poisoned with dried poisonous mushrooms the whole of a family of peasants. Among the victims was a daughter of the criminal, who was a servant in the family. This circumstance was adduced in favor of the accused, but served only to corroborate the suspicion against him when it was found that, in the part of the country from which the accused came, 
it was an universally believed opinion that poisonous mushrooms were perfectly harmless to young women. Besides such scientific knowledge, the investigating officer ought to have at least an approximate idea of the effects of poison, but this he can only acquire by careful study of some first-class manual of toxicology. Here only the most striking points can be noticed. 1. All cases of death are suspicious, which follow a sickness of which the cause is unknown, presenting symptoms not agreeing with the usual symptoms of a natural illness. Undoubtedly, such an indication is very vague and still further loses in value when it is remembered that the classic symptoms of poisoning, such as vomiting, diarrhea, giddiness, etc., do not necessarily accompany all poisons, and that, on the other hand, the sudden appearance of these symptoms does not conclusively indicate a case of poisoning. It is exactly the people who are circumspect, and therefore the most dangerous, who know how to make use of a slow and creeping poison, producing only a sickness marked by long-continued weakness without any of these alarming symptoms. 2. An investigating officer should never neglect an opportunity of being present at a chemical analysis made by experts, for example in endeavoring to establish the presence of arsenic in the stomach. Not until he has seen this done will he realize the difficulty and trouble he is giving them. He will also at the same time learn for future guidance what may reasonably be demanded of them and what are the limits of their knowledge. He will also learn that one cannot search for the poison, so to say, in the dark. Amateurs and even lawyers are often found who imagine that to establish the presence of a poison by chemical analysis, one can proceed as if one were looking for a lost ring in a bag of flour, where you might also happen to find a pocket knife, a watch, or any other object that is contained in it. The chemist can, in general, direct his investigations to one single poison or a group of poisons alone, and if it is necessary to extend them to another poison or group, special investigation must be made for the purpose. If, for instance, a chemist, after a careful and conscientious examination, finds no trace of arsenic, that does not prove that the object examined does not contain ten other poisons, and particularly organic poisons. In a case of poisoning, therefore, even more than in cases of another nature, the investigating officer should endeavor to be in close communication with the experts, to communicate every information he has on the matter, and to endeavor, if possible, to have a conference between the medical men who treated the deceased, those who made the post-mortem, and the chemical examiner, so as to decide in what direction inquiry should be made, whether it is necessary to call in the aid of microscopists or botanists, whether any particular portions of the body should be preserved for further examination, and lastly, if, in view of the statements of the witnesses or other indications, it appears necessary to start fresh inquiries. As a general rule, such conferences should always be arranged. They frequently give important results, and they ease the conscience of the investigating officer. He has the consolation of having done everything it was humanly possible for him to do. 3. When the least suspicion of poisoning exists conformably to instructions, the stomach and its contents should be removed by the nearest available medical man, generally in India, a hospital assistant or apothecary, and preserved for the purpose of putting them at the disposal of the court and the chemical examiner. Then one should scrutinize on the spot with the aid of the medical man and the assistance of a good magnifying glass, and without avoidable disturbance, the stomach and intestines, etc., to see if any plants or fragments of plants, suspicious foreign bodies, etc., are to be seen. If there are, 
they should then be examined to see if they are poisonous. Organic bodies in favorable circumstances offer little resistance to decomposition and always become very difficult to detect after a few days, but if the medical men remove the stomach at the moment of the post-mortem and put it in water or in alcohol or dry it for the purpose of preservation, they will perhaps have preserved the most important object in the whole inquiry. 4. For the interrogation of witnesses before the examination of the corpse, the following characteristic signs should be noticed, which if not altogether conclusive, at least justify suspicions of poisoning. A. In general, poisoning, and particularly arsenical poisoning, may be suspected when there are found vomiting, violent thirst, sensation of burning in the throat, pains in the stomach, diarrhea, and cramp in the calves of the legs, or some of these symptoms. Many believe that the perspiration and respiration of persons poisoned by arsenic have an odor of garlic, like that disengaged when arsenic is sprinkled on burning charcoal. But it appears that this odor is found only in cases of chronic poisoning. It has already been pointed out how closely the symptoms of cholera resemble those of poisoning by arsenic, the Indian poison par excellence. Arsenic is largely used as an antidote to fevers of all kinds, as an aphrodisiac in cases of rheumatism, gout, and syphilis, and externally for skin diseases such as itch and eczema. It is also employed for many industrial purposes, as in curing skins and gold-working, and preserving roofs, floors, and walls of buildings from the ravages of vermin, and particularly white ants. For the latter purpose, it is commonly mixed with tar and brushed into cracks and holes. The arsenious oxide, or common white arsenic of the bazaars, is that most commonly used for all these purposes. For homicidal employment, it is frequently mixed with coarse sugar and made up into a sweetmeat. It is sold either as a white powder or as a solid white mass resembling enamel. In the latter form, it must of course be pounded before use. Traces of pounding should therefore be looked for. Red arsenic, or real gar, and yellow arsenic, or orpiment, are also occasionally employed, generally mixed with a proportion of white arsenic. B. In poisoning by phosphorus, there is pain in the stomach, vomiting, feeble pulse, and collapse. In chronic cases, there may be yellowing of the skin and slight bleeding from nose, mouth, and bowels. The phosphorus for poisoning is ordinarily obtained from the ends of matches, and the phosphorus from 16 matches has been found sufficient to poison an adult. C. In homicidal and suicidal cases, mercury poisoning mostly takes the acute form. The agent is chiefly corrosive sublimate, or mercuric chloride, a white crystalline mass or crystalline powder sold freely in the bazaars. The most striking symptoms are those of irritant poisonings generally. As a rule, they come on more quickly than in the case of arsenic. Moreover, while arsenic is almost tasteless, corrosive sublimate has a metallic taste. D. Opium, as already pointed out, is the favorite medium of suicidal poisoning, and can generally be at once detected by the characteristic odor. Opium both in its solid form and as a decoction is so universally used, especially as a febrifuge, and so familiarly known throughout India that no investigating officer needs any description of it. E. Strychnine causes death by convulsions and immediately renders the corpse rigid, a rigidity which sometimes remains for weeks. F. Datura, the poison of the thugs, 
is still used mainly to facilitate robbery, and that chiefly in the western districts, where traditions, even memories, of these daring depredators still exist. It has been pointed out that as Datura is popularly supposed not to be poisonous to death, the fatal result is due to the overdose necessary to put the robber on the safe side. The Datura seeds, whole or broken up, are commonly mixed with sweetmeats or food, and whole seeds or fragments may consequently be found in the stomach or the remains of the meal. Great care must be taken not to confuse the datura seed with that of the capsicum or chili, one of the most common ingredients of native curries. The seed of the tomato may also be mistaken for datura, but is in less common use. Figure 116 represents the plant bearing the seed capsules, while figure 117a and b show side-by-side -side sections of datura and capsicum seeds. Chevers notes the following superficial distinctions. The one great distinguishing feature, above all others, is the form and shape of the embryo. If one of each of the seeds be divided by cutting parallel with the flattened sides, the embryo of the capsicum will be found curved like the figure 6, while the end of the curve of datura is twisted or recurved, not towards the downstroke of the 6, but away from it, or towards the right hand. There are, however, many minor differences of great importance. When taken together, these may be contrasted thus. Seeds of the common or white datura. 1. Almost kidney-shaped, but one end much smaller than the other. 2. Outline angular. 3. Size, rather more than a quarter of an inch long and rather less in width. 4. Color, greenish-brown when fresh, changing to yellow when dry. 5 attached to the placenta by large white fleshy mass which separates easily leaving a deep furrow along half the length of the concave border of the seed six subsurface scabrous almost reticulate except on the two compressed sides where it has become almost glaucous from pressure of the neighboring seeds seven convex border thick and bulged with a longitudinal depression between the bulgings caused by the compression of the two sides 8. When divided into two, by cutting with a knife placed in the furrow on the convex border, the testa is seen irregular and angular in outline. The embryo is seen lying curved and twisted in a fleshy albumen. Seeds of the common capsicum. 1. Kidney-shaped. 2. Outline rounded. 3. A little shorter and wider than datura. 4. Yellow. 5 attached to the placenta by a thin cord from a prominence on the concave border of the seed. 6. Uniformly scabrous, the sides being equally rough with the borders. 7. Convex border thickened, but uniformly rounded. 8. When similarly divided, the testa is more uniform in outline. The embryo is seen lying in a fleshy albumen, curved, but not twisted or recurved. The taste of the capsicum is pungent while that of the datura is insipid. The most distinctive external symptoms of datura poisoning are giddiness, followed by drowsiness and muttering delirium, picking at imaginary objects, sometimes wild and excited behavior, but always wide dilation of the pupils of the eyes, while internally the brain is congested, and so also frequently are the lining of the mucous membrane of the stomach and intestines. G. Aconite Econitum ferox. 
though a long way behind arsenic and opium, is the third favorite poison in Bengal. It is so virulent that it is commonly called in Bengal the poison. Aconite is one of those poisons of which the alkaloid, if discovered in the body, may be hastily mistaken for the cadaveric alkaloids of ptomaine poisoning. For practical purposes, the only test available is the physiological, for example, by taste, and it is stated by the authorities that no other alkaloid has yet been discovered with the characteristic results of tasting this alkaloid, namely tingling of the lips and tongue followed by numbness. The root is the most active. It closely resembles horseradish roots, see figure 118, and as Chevers points out is sold very cheap in India. The symptoms resemble those caused by many of the tomains. We find irritation of the stomach with vomiting, the membrane after death being of a highly inflamed red color. There is generally muscular weakness with dilation of the pupil of the eye. Aconite is largely consumed medicinally for fever, cholera, and rheumatism. It is also a favorite medium for poisoning arrows, and also in war for poisoning wells and tanks and other sources of drinking water. H. Carbolic acid and phenyl the most commonly used disinfectant of the present day, is a very ready instrument of poisoning. The skin where touched by the acid becomes white and the urine is colored red or green. The odor of fennel is known all over the world and is very readily recognized. It is also remarkable that the taste of fennel is not so disagreeable as one would think. Introduced in a small quantity into the mouth, it has a particularly piquant flavor, recalling rather a strong and sweet liqueur which explains perhaps the frequency of its use in cases of poisoning. J. Prussic acid and all its combinations are recognized by the strong odor of bitter almonds. This odor can sometimes be distinctly felt in the room in which the corpse is found. K. Atropine and all the forms of belladonna strongly dilate the pupil of the eye. Sometimes this dilation is so great that the membrane of the iris is reduced to a very narrow circular ring, Besides, the person poisoned will complain of this dilation, which produces a very disagreeable effect on the eye. L. Nicotine is recognized by the well-known odor of tobacco juice. The general symptoms of nicotine poisoning resemble those of datura. M. Santonine is commonly used for extirpating worms, and as infants are extremely sensitive to this medicant, its absorption is at times followed by sudden death. In poisoning by santonine, the urine is yellowish-green. The use of other poisons, such as sulfuric acid, oxalic acid, etc., is not so frequent as to necessitate more than a passing reference here. 5. In cases of poisoning by organic substances generally, the medium cannot, as explained above, be readily detected by chemical or microscopic analysis, but the absorption of organic substances has been frequently noted to produce brain affectations, sometimes rising to furious delirium. Such substances are cantharides, henbane, hemlock, datura, belladonna, digitalis, absinthe, opium, hashish, and poisonous mushrooms. The effects of henbane, or hyoscyamus, sometimes called koibang, or mountain hemp, applied externally or internally, should be noted. Elzelt Nguyen describes how an old lady used poultices of henbane leaves for some disorder. Two old servants who had prepared the poultices began to quarrel during the evening without any apparent motive. Soon they came to blows, and finally the old lady herself joined in the affray with the greatest animation. 
This illustrates a common remark that persons under the effect of henbane poisoning are very fond of quarreling and beating each other. It is also stated that decoctions of this plant produce violent accessions of rage, and even that the ancient Germans drank it before going to battle to give them courage. The Commissioner of Sindh, in 1894, reports that the Balochists smoke it exactly like ganja, but it is very powerful and makes them positively mad. Under its influence, they strip themselves naked and dance about like lunatics. Illustrations of the seed, capsule, and section are given in figure 119. For historical notice, see drash, etc. Among other organic substances, cantharides, datura, and some others are strong erotics. 6. In poisoning by sulfuric ether and chloroform, in the case of women, phenomena similar to those resulting from copulation are sometimes produced. Hence, medical men have occasionally been falsely accused of having taken advantage of women while under the influence of narcotic sleep. 7. Pounded glass is not infrequently, perhaps less frequently now than formerly, used both homicidally and suicidally. It is not a poison, though popularly believed to be so, but a mechanical irritant, and the more finely it is pounded, the less likely it is to do harm to the victim. Hence, there is some compensation in its use for homicidal purposes, for the poisoner, to avoid detection as soon as the food is taken into the mouth, is careful to pound it as finely as possible, and thus diminishes the risk to his prey. The glass is frequently the convenient glass bangle. A small fragment of colored glass in the stomach must therefore rouse suspicion. An instance of attempted suicide by this means, prompted by jealousy, occurred in Madras while this page was passing through the press. 8. In concluding this section, a primitive method for ascertaining the presence of arsenic may be described. Arsenic poisoning is so frequent that the investigating officer constantly finds himself under the necessity of deciding, even at the moment of the post-mortem, whether the case be one of murder or not, and consequently if he should take further action in the inquiry. For example, the post-mortem proves the existence on the mucous membrane of the stomach of small red spots or lines, containing small white or yellow grains. The natural conclusion is that the substance is arsenic, but such suspicion is not sufficient for the arrest of anyone on so grave a charge as poisoning. Recourse should then be had to the following simple experiment, so simple that it should never be omitted. Take a glass test tube closed at one end, which the investigating officer should always have with him. Remove from the mucous membrane one of those white or yellow grains, being careful to leave sufficient for the purpose of the chemical examiner. Dry it with a very clean blotting paper or cigarette paper and place it in the tube. Heat carefully, holding the tube in an inclined position over a candle or spirit lamp. If the grain be arsenic, it will be vaporized. The vapor will be condensed and will be deposited on the cold portion of the tube as a white or yellow patch. This does not indeed absolutely prove that the grain is arsenic but the probability is so great that the persons supposed to be guilty may be arrested without hesitation. Of course, all this should be carefully recorded and the test tube preserved intact. End of section 6